Alright, welcome everybody to Moa Don't Ivri Hebrew Club. Glad to see you on this beautiful day here. And we're doing a good psalm um, as we are continuing through the penitential psalms. And like I said, we'll go back to Psalm 38 after this week. So we can look forward to that and, and begin to compare 51 to 38. Um, we finished at verse 11 of Psalm 51 last week with the haster paneka me chata'ai v'kol avonotai meche. Hide your face from my sins and all my iniquities meche. <clears throat> Wipe out. Alright, so we're in the middle of David's plea for that. We have a, a number of interesting kind of constructions in the section coming up. So verse 12. Lev tahor berah li Elohim veruach na kon chadesh bekirbi. A heart, a clean one, <coughs> now notice we have the imperative, a heart, a clean one, create for me, O Elohim, O God. Alright? And a ruach nakon. Anyone parse nakon for me? What's the root? Kun and what's conjugation? Nifal parsable. Good. And a spirit, a nakon, um, a right one or an established one or a steady one a ruach nakon chadesh renew bekirbi in my midst alright uh, any questions on verse 12 do you draw a lot of significance out of Torah or not I would not um, in other words that would be I think Bara is sometimes used in conjunction with Asa. So, in other words, you don't want to... I think it's an illegitimate totality transfer mistake when you say, oh, this means create out of nothing and try to make a huge theological point out of that. Um, I think that the context determines our creation ex nihilo. Again, that's just... That's me. Um, I know others want to do it, but it's always risky to try to make a deep theological point on a meaning of a word no matter what the context. So I don't know if his point is here, um, create a clean heart out of nothing. It's just, um, you know, this kind of transform, transforming, um, this kind of cleansing. Um, uh, you know, I may be persuaded by other arguments. Again, I'm, uh, I'm willing to listen at least. But I, don't want, I wouldn't press it too hard, I guess. So we use when God is in... I think so, when God's doing it. I think that's right. Yeah. Good. Any other questions that uh, border on can't answerable? <laughs> All right. Verse thirteen. Al tashli keni milfaneka verach kod shaka al tikach mimeni. Do not cast me. Notice that this is a hip feel from shalak to throw. Do not throw me from lefaneka from before you. Do not throw me from before you. What a great picture of a king, you know, you come for mercy, and if the king um, does the wrong signal, you're gone, you're dragged away. So do not cast me from before you. And here's a great, Ruach Kodsheka, spirit of your holiness. Notice Kodsheka, and again, the uh, genitive functions probably with an adjectival force. And your Holy Spirit, Al Tikach, do not take from me. <clears throat> All right. Now, for us readers, we have no problem seeing Holy Spirit here. All right. Um, and obviously, other people kind of would explain that in a much more um, 
diffuse way is referring to, you know, his his um, attitude of um, kindness to him or something like that. You know, they would tend to deny that. But uh, I really love that. I mean, notice what he's saying. Cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, you know, I mean, notice how he's picturing the possibility of being rejected and what it means to be rejected by God. Jim? Does Ruach, uh, could Ruach have anything to do with, with breath, like Ruach Kodeshka, um, like, a, like, like a word of blessing, almost? Like? Well, that would be, obviously, um, Ruach can have that meaning, you know, don't take your holy breath from me. Uh, and I suppose there's probably people that would interpret it that way. You know, those who don't want to see the Trinity here or want to uh, try to make a case for a more, um, you know, just a, a kind of a different force for the language. Ruach is one of those words that allows that. So you notice how our assumptions really determine how we're going to translate that and understand the text. We're getting way into theology. Yeah, Josh. Well, here's another kind of poetry question, but in some languages the adjectives in poetry describe not, sometimes don't describe the noun but what the noun affects Mm -hmm. a spirit that makes holy as opposed to a spirit that is holy. Do do adjectives ever work like that in Hebrew? Um, In Hebrew poetry? Well, uh, again, it depends on the word. If the word has, we kind of tend to look at the more this is a subjective, this is an objective genitive with words that have more action qualities. I don't know if Ruach makes that as easy to do. And again, remember, uh, Kodshekha is a noun. From, it's not from Kadosh, it's from Kodesh. So it's really spirit of your holiness. Um, and, but, you know, your question is, how do you negotiate the relationship between the genitive and the construct? And, and you're always trying to negotiate that. There are no quotes givens. Um, and, you know, so even something as simple as this, depending on um, what your commitments are and what your interpretive suppositions are, you're going to come out very differently on even a translation of this word or what this word means, what the relationship is. See? All right, any other questions? Okay, good. Verse 14. Hashiva lisason yeshekha veruach nediva tismakeni. Hashiva, what is that? Anyone see it? Shuv, good. And what conjugation? Hifil what? Hifil imperative from shuv. And notice what the again we see that hey at the end of it. Hashiva. Notice we normally see that on cohort it is, but you also see it on quite a few um, imperatives. Lake, Leka, Kum, Kuma. Um, and again, I, I, I've said this many times, but uh, one explanation is that when the speaker wants to emphasize something done for his benefit or for his interest and wants to make that more forceful, you add the hey. Uh, I think it's an Akkadian. There's a ventive that has that form, and that's what some suggest the hey is on the imperatives. So notice that, uh, again, return to me something done in the interest of the speaker, see? So restore to me the sison yesheka, the joy of your salvation. Now, Josh, what's the relationship between joy here and salvation, would you say? Objective? I don't know. Okay, see? I mean, the notice you have to kind of think about it, really, and one possible explanation is the salvation that brings me joy, that makes me joyful, see? 
Um, the joy that comes from knowing I'm saved. All right? um, and a Ruach Nedivah, notice here, um, uh, we would tend to interpret Ruach Nedivah differently than Ruach Kotsheka here. If I'm referring Ruach Kotsheka kind of to your Holy Spirit, see, then here we're kind of thinking of spirit more internally. And uh, uh, nadiv is an adjective that means ready or willing, voluntary. Okay? So, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uh, tis mekani, this is from samak, support. And support me, see now notice we in English have to supply the preposition, with a spirit willing, with a willing spirit. Alright? So, um, if that's the move that he's making, notice in 14 he goes to kind of his internal state. Restore to me the joy and support me with a, a ruach nediva, a willing spirit, an eager spirit. Um, so it's, it's very um, powerful. I mean, the two passages together, 13 and 14, um, kind of external action moving to his internal heart and attitude and um, uh, you know, his inner disposition now. Alright? Well, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I, right. I think that, um, I mean, I always kind of go to the passage, Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So, I mean, the renewed man uh, has this delight. Um, his spirit um, sees the law in kind of a whole different way than the flesh, you know. Um, uh, and so he's, I, I, I kind of would read this passage with that kind of passage in mind. So uh, the willing spirit is uh, um, one that has seen who he is and admitted his sin and now knows the joy of his salvation. So he's kind of a new creature. See, he's, he, the difference is between well, how do you make someone love you? See, when you're in love, you have this willing spirit. Nothing's too hard. If you don't love, if your heart's not in it, your heart's just not in it. You know, you just don't, you know, you can't make yourself fall in love. or No one can make you fall in love. It kind of, that's why you call it falling in love. Well, here it's kind of like that. Um, you know, give me that kind of spirit that just is in love with you and with what you've given me and, you know, reflected in your life. Uh, that's the power of the gospel. That's what the gospel gives. And notice that that's in the background of everything that he's asking. He's asking for mercy and grace, good news from God here. All right? <clears throat> Verse 15. Alamda poshim derakeka vechataim eleka yashuvu. Notice that that is a what? A piel from Lamad to teach, right? And it's a cohortative. Now, notice most translations don't go that way, but if you just kind of go, notice it's first of all first in the clause, and there's a general tendency in poetry when it's first in the clause to have a more volatile force. Remember that that's almost 100% rule in narrative as well. That when, you, when the, something comes first in a clause, it has a, a volatile force to it. So you could translate, let me learn, I mean, I'm sorry, let me teach. Poshim, it's a parcel from Pasha to rebel. Let me teach transgressors or the rebellious ones your ways. All right. So notice how he goes from 13, 14 to 15. What this would mean. All right. Now again, most translations don't 
translate it that way. They translate it more as, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Um, um, then I will teach, or so that I might teach. So some give it a more sub- subjunctive force, so to speak, so that I might teach. Um, transgressors your race. But again, in poetry, it's kind of nice. Notice that um, let me teach leaves that explicit link more implicit, but that would be the force of his request. Let me teach, see? Um, in other words, once you restore me, here's what I want to do. So let me teach transgressors your ways, and sinners uh, to you will return. Said about uh, when a verbal form comes at the beginning of a yes. clause. You mean not after a pause? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, yeah. And even so, I mean, when you look at narrative, notice that um, outside of the imperative, you have like the imperfect forms that you're always wondering: Is this volative, or is it? Am I making a prediction here, or what am I doing? And in narrative, generally. Not generally, that's kind of a strong rule. When the verbs come first in a clause, they have that volative force. So some linguists say that it's that in Hebrew it wasn't the shape of or the form, the morphology of the verb that determined whether it was volative, it's actually its place in the sentence. Now when you get to poetry, that rule doesn't seem to be it, I would say that it's more of a rule of thumb than it is in so that you see that tendency, and when you look at translations, that's kind of how they go. But then you'll see a lot of exceptions uh, and ones that you're kind of ambiguous about. So even this last word here, yashuvu, can you translate that with the justice force? And as for sinners, let them return to you. You know, given what you, ha- if you've given it that force in the first verse, first co- um, colon, what about here? You know, um, yeah, and it's possible. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, verse 16. Hatzileni midamim Elohim Elohei Teshuati Teranein Lashoni Zid Kateka. Deliver me. There's our famous Natsal. Deliver me midamim from bloods. <laughs> um, here's the plural and the shedding of blood, but here it also has this uh, meaning of blood guilt. Um, in, in the legislative stuff, um, I just looked up a couple passages here, and it's used a handful of times with this blood guilt time meaning. So that, um, for example, if you do something to a guy, you strike him, and he inadvertently dies, um, it's, it's kind of ain lo damim, not to him damim. Namely, there's not kind of blood guilt to him. He's not guilty of murder, I suppose. So... Um, deliver me from this kind of blood guiltiness. Wow, which, if that's true, you know, you can see in the back of his mind what he did to Uriah, see. Alright. Oh, and now notice how he makes this plea. Deliver me from blood guilt, O oh God, the God of my Teshuati, salvation. See the root from Yasha? Yeshua is a more common noun, but you also have Teshua. O oh God of my salvation. See, and again, if I'm going with my pattern, let my um, lishoni, let my tongue give a ringing cry, all right, or cry out over Zidkatek, your righteousness. Now, notice this is a great word to use here. Um, 
because it wouldn't be so much the sense of God's inherent righteousness, but more in the sense of this is what God has given me. Uh, so that you're much more on the salvation side with tzedakah. God has done this tzedakah to me or for me. All right? Uh, and I want to sing about that, having been delivered from this sense of damim. All right, any questions through 16? Okay, verse 17. Adonai, sefatai tiftach, upi yagi tehilateka. O God, sefatai, my lips. Now here you have this imperfect, see? Which is normally translated with a kind of an imperative force. O God, open my lips. Okay? And, when you do and, my mouth, Yagid, will declare Tehilateka, your praise. See? O God, open my lips, so that the second colon would be seen as kind of a result. O God, open my lips, and my mouth, uh, then, if you do that, will declare your praise. But you could almost translate it, the two, the relationship more as the first one kind of subordinate temporally or something like, or even conditionally. Oh my God, if you open my lips, then my mouth will declare your praise. Or when you open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. All right. So again, notice he's giving all power to God. God's the one that kind of has to animate him, so to speak. God's the one who has to do it because um, uh, you know he's so deep in his sin. Verse 18. Kilo takpos zevach ve'etena ola lo tirtze. Okay. Um, now, what's the force of the key? See, does causal really make sense here? So let, let's translate the rest of it. Key, lo, you do not delight uh, in zevach. All right. So notice that there is an asseverative use of the key, asseverative force. Certainly, you do not delight in sacrifice. Okay? Now, remember, Hebrew has a way of saying, when we would say, this is more important than this, or this rather than this, Hebrew has tends to say, not this, but this. Um, so notice what he's not, and we will see when we get to the last three verses, he's not rejecting sacrifice per se, but he's rejecting this ex opera, operato kind of conception, just offer sacrifices, doesn't matter where your heart is, see? So it's kind of, certainly you do not delight in sacrifice. And you have to, see, when you understand that, you have to say, certainly you do not delight in sacrifice for its own sake, or as if that does something for you, see? The attain, and now notice the relationship you're trying to get, um, else I would give it, see? Or, but, but notice you're trying to figure out the link, all right? Certainly you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, see? Um, Ola, burnt offering, um, you do not favor. Tirtza. Alright. Now notice where he makes a move in verse 19. Zivche Elohim Ruach Nishbara. The sacrifices of God are Ruach Nishbara, a spirit broken. This is a nifal, parsiple feminine from Shabar to break. A broken spirit, a shattered spirit. A heart Nishbar, a heart broken, and nidka, again a nifal from Daka, crushed. Okay? Oh God, you will not tivsa, despise. Alright, so it's a great move here talking, hey, you don't delight in sacrifice for their own sake. The sacrifices that God wants is a, is a broken spirit, the crushed heart. Alright? 
Um, uh, now, again, verses 20 and 20. First of all, let me ask, are there any questions through 19? Very interesting, 20 and 21, as you're reading along, you say, well, how did it, it seems like these kind of things are in another world here. Um, now, it's certainly possible that, that um, these could have been something that the community added to the psalm between the captivity and the rebuilding, as you will see. Um, but also possible that David wrote them in regard to Zion, um, especially as he was thinking about uh, once the tabernacle was there, his plans, remember, were to build the temple there. So let's read them, and then we can kind of look at them. Hetiva birtzoneka et zion. That's a hifil from yatav, to be good, but the hifil imperative. Notice the he at the end of it. Um, do good. Birtzoneka in your favor. To Zion. So do Zion well or treat Zion well. Birtzoneka, in your favor. Okay? Um, Tivne Chomot Yerushalam. Again, build. Again, notice it's kind of, notice these words are coming at the beginning of clauses. So here, um, I would tend to translate this more as a command, which most translators do. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Alright, so notice this is why um, it's thought, well, what the, what the post-exilic community is doing is taking on the penance of David. It's kind of an interesting point. kind of resonate with it. That they take on the penance of David for their own sins as they're looking at the, at the wreck and, and um, give, it, give what he's undergoing, put it in their own lips to ask for forgiveness in God's favor. Alright? Um, so verse 21, then you will be delighted, Tachvotz, with Zivchetzedek, with sacrifices of righteousness. Now, what's interesting about right sacrifices is how we understand that. We don't understand it as sacrifices done ritually correctly. But notice in light of verse, verse 19, right sacrifices are sacrifices that are done from the proper perspective, with the proper frame of mind. See, um, the repentant heart with the proper understanding. Okay, It's also interesting, you could really force the issue in a Lutheran way, sacrifices which um, actually bring righteousness. All right. um, burnt offering and khalil, whole burnt offering. Then ya'alu, um, they will bring up, again, um, they will offer up, uh, here's kind of an impersonal, um, and the subject, then um, they will offer bulls on your altar, and we would probably translate in better English, then bulls will be offered up on your altar. Okay. All right, good. That's a beautiful psalm, and notice uh, the theology is pretty incredible when you start to think about it. Um, and Luther has written an interesting preface to Psalm 51 that's worth reading, um, in which he talks about... We don't usually think, you know, what the definition of sinners is. We usually think in terms of actions. But here the psalm talks about sin in this whole other way. You know, and because we think of sin in terms of actions, God's wrath, we, we kind of don't understand it. Is that really just? You know, I mean, I know, I've, I've lived 80 years, but 
hey, I haven't done that much wrong to be damned for eternity. But see, you know, the way Luther explains it from the base of Psalm 51, you see sin in a whole different light. And therefore, you're standing with Yahweh is seen in a whole different way. Um, and uh, it's something that we in the church, especially in our culture, uh, can stand to revisit and really think about. You know, how we get that point home to our people and the sense of what it really means to be a sinner. When we know that, then God's justification, as which is so beautifully kind of seen here, is seen in a different light as how precious and important it really is. Okay? That's enough theologizing. We'll go back to Psalm 38. Take care. Yeah, I know. Have a good week, you guys.